welcome to the panel on RNZ National. I'm Wallace Chapman. With me, Cindy Michener and David Cormack. And on a completely different note, uh, at 4.25, we do talk about the end of the 747. What I'd like to hear from you is uh, whether or not you have been on a 747 and what was in the upper deck. What Was there a cocktail lounge up there? Or is that a myth? Anyway, uh, one of the issues with the incessant rainfall is the volume uh, of uh, not just the rain, but the slips that have been occurring. The suburb of Titirangi especially hit hard, but also parts of Parnell, many homes that are near a cliff. People in homes in these areas are on tender hooks. What may happen when the next heavy rains come? And you've got State Highway 25A, for example, a main road into that uh, peninsula, Coromandel, will remain closed for the foreseeable future due to the road collapse. And now eyes are on State Highway 23 to Raglan. So let's talk the science of landslides, how to reduce the risk of slips. This came up in the civil defence warning today, saying that there is a high risk of more landslips across the region. With us is Associate Professor and Director of the Engineering Geology Programme at the University of Auckland, Martin Brook. Kia ora, Martin. Kia ora. You're Auckland-based too, Mark, so, you know, with this massive volume, first that fast and heavy flooding, I guess you would have been anticipating the slips to follow. Uh, yeah, some of them for certain in some areas. Um, but, I mean, it has been very interesting that, you know, a lot of the highly vegetated areas um, have been inundated by slips as well, which is often not what you see in, in New Zealand. For example, you know, in Gisborne, often we get urban landslides there where the slopes have been cleared, um, which, you know, makes them more susceptible. But, yeah, so, so it's been quite interesting seeing how things have unfolded. So what are the main determinants of a slip? Is it soil structure? Is it groundwater? Is it type of cover? There's, yeah, look, there's a myriad of different factors and parameters. And in fact, people do landslide susceptibility mapping using a whole host of different parameters. But one thing in Auckland is we have uh, clay-rich soils, um, which um, become weak when they're saturated, uh, that they lose their shear strength and fail. Um, also in Auckland, we, we do clear a lot of the bushland. We like living close to the edges of slopes, so we get magnificent views. So we do tend to live um, in a lot of areas that are susceptible to landslides. OK, before we go to our panel, Mark, later on in the programme, we are going to be talking specifically trees. We have very little tree canopy in Auckland, comparably, comparatively, what of that? Um, yeah, impermeable surf- surfaces um, in urban areas, suburban areas, uh, they they accentuate surface runoff, um, and that can be a problem. But the, the lack of tree cover in some areas is, is certainly a problem. And trees trees are good. The canopies stop uh, direct uh, contact of the water with the ground. The root systems are also very useful for stabilising the soil. Um, but I would say with, with some trees, um, they they can um, undertake, they are susceptible to wind loading in high winds. So the trees uh, vibrate and rock a bit like a sailing boat. Um, and that can cause uh, the trees to fail and fall over and move down slope and take the soil with it. So by and large, tree cover is very good. But in some instances, like on Mount Hobson, um, on the north side of it, um, you know, trees can actually cause instability in very high winds. Ah. 
Martin, just looking at the photos of State Highway 25A, um, yep. I mean, that's just absolutely <laughs> devastating. What can be what, done? Yes, yeah. I mean, you know, is there... They'd said they'd found cracks on the 17th of January. Yep. If on the 17th of January, could there have been anything done then that would have prevented the massive, massive mess that's there now? I would doubt it. It was obviously <laughs> failing then. Right. Um, and what we call at its factor of safety or heading just below its factor of safety. So so it was on the way to failing. You know, the best thing there is to probably close the road. Um, and I think that one is a full height failure. So it's not just part of the slope failing. I, from what I saw in the media, it's, it's, it looks like quite a deep-seated it, It's absolutely huge. Is there, so yeah. is there anything that we should be doing now... Mm. Is there any short-term emergency or measures that can be taken to make to mitigate? Some... So when yes. the next rain comes, Which wherever it may come, <laughs> Martin, um, yeah. we could it could help reduce. Yeah, for for householders, um, you know, I've seen this before. And this happened in 2017 when we had the Tasman tempest in March. Um, that big storm. Um, some householders, when they they had some cracks appearing on their land covered them with tarpaulins um and that can oh. that helped because um, that stopped any 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 rainfall going down the tension cracks that had opened up but um other than that you know think you've got to kind of plan ahead really and that's not removing vegetation it's not loading the slope by building swimming pools on it it's not changing the natural ge- geometry of the slope by you know cutting the slope or trimming it um you know, that's important. Any retaining walls you've got on your property, make sure that to a building code so you can get a chartered engineer to do that for you. Um, a lot of retaining walls that you see on around are, are kind of almost decorative um, and they're not actually retaining the soil. Um, um, and also, we Gisborne, yeah, we saw that in Gisborne in um, November 2021 when the state of emergency there was, was, was caused. You know, a lot of the retaining walls weren't built to code. Um, oh, and um, also don't direct stormwater uh, illegally into the ground via soaks. And I know a lot of people do that. In the, the house we purchased, me and my wife, actually, a few years ago, that had an illegal soak at the back. At the back. We covered it up. But So, um, so you know, stormwater should be going into a reticulated stormwater system, not being directed uh, into the ground. So, Martin, is that a no to cantilevered pools over cliff edges from now on? Yes, yeah, I would say so. And, okay. I mean, what we saw, what we saw in Gisborne, and it's a bit like. I mean, I've, I've been running field trips around the North Shore, <clears throat> excuse me, for, for several years with my grad students, and we see some interesting sites. But, but in Gisborne, <clears throat> we did a lot of satellite monitoring over six years of slope movement, and this is millimeter scale accuracy um, from radar, satellite radar, and you know we could see on a slope a slope would pick up speed and then you'd look at the um, the aerial images to see what happened and you know someone had built a swimming pool on the slope so they'd they'd loaded the slope they'd added weight to it oh, and that creates more driving stress on the slope and it actually speeded up the deformation and that's that, the slope I'm talking about actually failed in Gisborne in, in 2021 David um, David Cormick yeah, uh, the, I don't know if you heard Mark before talking about um, his maid in his house woke up and his parts of his land had disappeared out from under him. In the immediate, is there sort of signs and warnings that this is about to happen and so you should get the hell out of Dodge? Uh, there can be, excuse me. So, um, you know, your, your doors and windows might be a bit tighter. 
there might be some tension cracks on on your land or maybe a bit of buckling in the grass or something like that um, and that that then probably should be inspected urgently um, having said that this same scenario happened in the UK in August 2021 in, Pen- in, um, in Cumbria, and some cracks opened up on the hillside above a village, um, and the village was evacuated, the school businesses closed down for about 10 days, and the engineers eventually realised that actually the slope wasn't moving, it was just some, some cracking of the clay-rich soils, and it was actually quite benign. And um, so after about 10 days, the villagers could, could return. So it's really important that a chartered engineer um, inspects your property. Um, yeah. Just finally, uh, Martin, uh, there is also that uncomfortable issue that some areas now may not be conducive to building on, even areas yeah. that have been inhabited for many years, if not decades. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean... Um, there are, I mean, building setback distance is, is important, and that you know that's the distance, the horizontal distance from the top of the slope that you you you, you don't build on. Um, they're also important at the bottom of the slope as well to have a setback distance because you know if a slope above your property fails, then you can have your house inundated, and that has happened unfortunately in this. Uh, over the last few days uh, in places. Um, so setback distances are important. And the council's proposed plan change number 78, I think, that's going to limit development, future development, within coastal hazard zones. So that will take care of coastal landslides, potentially, but to new properties, not existing ones. Uh, but it also won't take um, account of, of, of inland um, slope instability issues. So I think with you know iterations of the Auckland Unitary Plan, in future it's going to be quite interesting um, any new restrictions that get incorporated into it. This has been fascinating, Martin. I really appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you. No problem. Bye-bye. That is uh, Associate Professor Martin Brook, who is an expert in landslides and slips um, with some uh, very in- interesting information there. 17 past four, you are on the panel on RNZ National. Now, in other news, a new report from Independent Children's Monitor... Aroturiki Tamariki shows around half of children in state care do not have a GP. Just 53% are registered. But Oranga Tamariki weren't able to tell how many children were actually seeing the doctor or dentist for regular checks. To discuss, we have Aaron Jones, head of Aroturiki Tamariki Independent Children's Monitor. Kia ora, Aaron. Yeah, kia ora, Wallace. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for being with us. Um, that number stuck out i mean <laughs> half of children in state care do not have a gp that would mean that the welfare checks the simplest of health checks being in the system they're not there yeah look that's right and that's why it's so important that they are registered you know with a health professional otherwise they could be missing opportunities um you know for immunizations or other health checks um, and when you couple that up, as you said, with not having the information to know whether they're actually going to annual health checks and dental checks for that matter, that means that you can't really see the, the, the exact nature of, of the problem. And we've got immunisation information, other critical stuff that um, they won't be privy to because they're not... I mean, how how long has this been going for? I noticed that there's been a decline even, um, 7% fall of access to a GP. So it's going the other way. Yeah, look, in terms of how long, I, you know, we, we've been in place and doing this reporting, this is our second report, so we've only looked back the last couple of years, but, um, 
yeah, it's hard to know whether this is a, a continuing drop, but look, we'll be reporting on these things every year, so hopefully we'll be able to start to see some progress. Okay, let's hope, Cindy. So, Aaron, without wishing to be critical of, of staff, etc., at Oranga Tamariki, how much of this is like a technology issue? They just don't have databases, so they're not using them, or, or no, nobody's using databases to connect up the services, or are people just not prioritising the face-to-faces? I mean, the 6,300 children, is it a matter of more people or the people that are doing it doing it better? What seems to be the key problem? Look, well, I think the first the first point around, around systems, look, it's not to say that this information might not be on, on case records and local sites, but the issue is, is that, um, you know, at national office they're unable to get a really accurate picture of what things look like. And without getting that accurate picture, it's really difficult to make um, targeted decisions or the right decisions, and then when you put initiatives in place, it's difficult to tell whether those initiatives are having an impact. So, um, well, is it is it being addressed? Is the technology issue being addressed in terms of you know a whole view of you know I have to say a whole view of the customer, yeah. but a, a whole view of, of the um, children? Well, I think you know reports like this and raising it as an issue help drive that impetus and certainly Oranga Tamariki and their response to us have set out um, their roadmap for improving um, their data and their technology. Um, it will take some time and you know I think from our perspective um, we wrote to the chief executive last year saying you know I know systems are on the way but um, there might be some manual things you can do in the meantime to try and get some of this key information up and out from your sites um, now rather than waiting for systems to necessarily be built. Okay David. Thinking, yeah. Um, straight up not good enough, eh? Like, these are our most vulnerable members of society, and um, if we don't have the data on them, we need to get the data on them. If they're not seeing doctors, they need to be seeing doctors. I mean, it speaks to some broader systemic issues around the provision of healthcare in this country, which we seem to have a dire shortage of, which COVID exposed and made worse. But... Uh, I, don't, I mean, this agency has just had horror story after horror story after horror story. And when does it stop? What 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 is the solution? I mean, I know there's no silver bullet here, but it just seems bananas to me that we are letting our tamariki get damaged these ways through no fault of their own. Well, well part of our kaupapa is to be, we go out into the communities and try and understand what some of the root causes for why these things might not be happening or potentially why good things are happening. So in, in the report, you'll see um, quotes from Oranga Tamariki staff and others talking about some of the barriers around access to healthcare. Um, and I think, you know, it's good to see this, it's this, this, this issue, I think, in terms of health, while the reporting is clearly a, a concern for Oranga Tamariki that they need to address, some of the issues around access to health aren't necessarily um, within their control. And, you know, we've got um, stories that we hear from Oranga Tamariki staff where they feel like they've been left um, with the responsibility um, of trying to knock down the door to access services. Um, and so there, there are, uh, are numerous examples through the report around that. So this is about um, right. those agencies on the ground working better together. Yeah. And it's um, not just, but it's not just um, health, though, is it? I mean, it's, it's interesting, oh. isn't it? I mean, for example, education, where a teacher who spoke anonymously said, "Look, uh, Oranga Tamariki would often move a child, but would not tell the teachers, and wouldn't yeah. pass on their notes to the new school." So often, what happens is that when kids move, 
the ministry isn't told so that learning support doesn't transfer with them. So over the holidays, uh, they've got no idea which school they've gone to. So again, that notion of the child's hidden. Yeah, and I, you know, and, and reflecting back on last year's report, we talked about you know a lot of effort on the Oranga Tamariki part goes into the the urgent um, actions that need to happen at the time um, Tamariki come into care. It's that ongoing, sustained delivery um, and support that seems to fall away, and that's why you see you know results um, around um, the frequency of visits and support to carers, um, the frequency of visits and support for Tamariki that are in care. It's kind of maintaining that um, that service along the way. But, you know, also, you know, I would point to the fact that there are areas of, of um, good practice and, and certainly in our um, chapter around health, we refer to, you know, an EWI provider and, and this is where the silos don't necessarily occur because you've got a, um, a provider that has the health services on site as right. well as the social services. So when whānau are coming in, when tamariki comes, it's very easy for them to connect up with all of those other services, which seems to be, and what we hear, a struggle between the, the state sort of agencies. I appreciate your time, Aaron. Kia ora. Thank You're you. welcome. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, Aaron Jones, head of uh, Aroturiki Tamariki. This is, is straight a, up one of the grimmest panels I've ever done. Yeah, Good yeah. Lord, we are just <laughs> lurching from horror story to horror story. Yeah, I was, I was trying. Well, is that a comment on it, us? It, do you it, think it, it, um, it's been? It's been. How shall we say? It's been. Um, it's only fair to say, David and Cindy, and to our other panelists, it's been a big news week uh, with many affected. So I'd love to. Um, enlighten you with other stories. Is there not um, a dog that's surfing or a, something light-hearted? It's well, kitten I, season. Did well, you know I, that? Well, I tell you what. Uh, if it makes you uh, uh, happier, I was just about to read out some feedback of which there's been many uh, about your. I've been thinking, David. Oh, this will all be super uh, positive. And um, it's um, it's 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 actually unanimously uh, for you. Uh, except for this one. David sounds like a disgruntled employee who wants his old job back. Um, but uh, Science say, James Shaw. Other, others, <laughs> other, others say, I agree with Cormac, green voter for life, but for goodness sake, develop a comms and media strategy that resonates with more than just Green Party Instagram followers. Uh, as a former Green Party person, I fully agree with David Cormack. The silences from the party's leaders has been as, as, surpri- as surprising uh, and annoying. Uh, you, so you, there's a lot about from your comments uh, about uh, where is the Green Party in all this? We might come back to this. Is it possible that the Green Party are saying, actually, we don't want to politicise what is uh, an, an, an absolute climate mm. tragedy? Is it possible that, the, I mean, Chloe Swarbrick is out with a band of helpers cleaning things up? So, I mean, I, I wonder if for a moment everybody is actually getting on with helping Fair people point. rather than trying to score political points. Okay. Yeah, but they can do both, right? Like, so, yes, Chloe has been out doing phenomenal work and um, Ricardo and Marama have also been doing a whole lot. But there's a whole bunch of um, folks down here who should be politicising this. This is very political. Climate change is very political. You should absolutely be trying to make people understand that there is a cause and effect here. So if they have decided that they're going to try and take some moral high ground and not politicise a tragedy, then they've got that wrong. Well, I'm not sure that 
that's the first thing on my mind. If uh, my kids have got nowhere to sleep, my house has gone, uh, and someone says, oh, you know, this is all the fault of not doing enough about climate change. I absolutely agree, but I also think that it is a time when we can think about the welfare of those and health and safety, etc. Yeah, we can and, do both. And so yeah, it's you. Well, so simply saying, no, no, it's you that's politicising it this afternoon on the panel. Well, that's David. fine. I'm quite happy to, but we can do both because we can, we need to talk about uh, adaptation to climate events, which is what we've touched upon, like with houses not being built yep. in low-lying areas, but we also need to talk about mitigation to stop it from actually even getting worse. Like, it's already pretty crap. Uh, and so we need to be doing everything we can to, to try and lessen the number of awful weather events that are coming our way. So I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. It would, no, but I think it is a prioritisation about how we do this. I don't think that it is the first thing on the mind of all of those that are affected. I think they've got some serious health, safety, family issues to look at. And the next step is sitting back and going, OK, what is the bigger picture? But I don't think that yeah, but you know beating people... the bigger picture drum all the time is you know, but you know there are people in Aotearoa outside of Auckland Day. Like, I know that Auckland sometimes does struggle to recognise this. <laughs> well, but there are people for whom we haven't been flooded, and so we can look at things as a bigger picture at the same time as we are expressing empathy and sympathy to the people who are going through this. Uh, well, this is, uh, who's just doing in, it? If you've just tuned in, <laughs> or this, not this, doing it? This this argy bargy is on the back of it. David Cormack's I've been thinking where, where he said this is this 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 is uh, unprecedented this flood, and you know what? Where is the Green Party? Where are they? Is or, he, or where is to anybody? To be fair, I said where is anybody except Labour? Yeah. So okay, yeah. Um, agree with media comment. It's horrible. The Labour spin operators have manipulated, arm twisted, and bribed their way to where we are now is this person's view. Um, your commentator is a little naive if he's never seen these operators in action. I have. Um, I have is been one, one of the he operators. He is one of the operators. <laughs> That's why he's so angry. Where are your substitutes? Yeah. Um, uh, oh, yes, and many, uh, a lot of people uh, coming in about the 747, by the way. I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to view the prototype mock-up. What? of the 747 project at Boeing's Everett Field, Seattle 66. It was a very cleverly constructed wooden structure. It gave one the illusion of a lighting via a staircase and curtained-off entry point. The mock-up cabin was configured with mirrors to reflect the illusion of a complete cabin. It had gained the moniker of the Jesus Christ Aerodyne due to the exclamations of the incredulous visitors. So after uh, the headlines... We discuss, and there's been many comments about this, the end of an era of the 747.